0: go. We do the hospital exam, all of that. And I don't even remember. There were so many people there that, man, I wish I could thank them. And I don't, I don't even know who they were. I don't remember hardly anything, but we leave there. And I remember we stopped at Baskin Robbins. We had to get ice cream. So of course we do that. Then we head to the police station. And at that point, We get to the police station. I remember my dad pulling me aside and he just said, Megan, it's over. And I remember thinking, yeah, I know. I'm right here. Like, it's all good. And he was like, no, it's over. And I just looked at him like, what are you talking about? And then he told me that he had got home after I got out of there. And law enforcement was there. They had the SWAT team there. And he pulled in and he had seen their vehicles and it took off into a high-speed chase up to Kelly Canyon. And there was a shootout and he shot himself. The canine was shot and killed and one officer was shot. Um, But as far as we knew, he was alive. I don't know, it was just so crazy. And I remember thinking, like, what is happening for reals? Like, I couldn't even fathom this. This is just so crazy that all of this just happened in 24 hours. But I was okay. It was okay. Everything was going to be fine.
1: This is She's Missing. This podcast discusses criminal behavior, kidnapping, gun violence, and adult themes. While not explicit, listener discretion is advised. We ask that if you know Megan or her family, that you continue to help protect her identity. After a very long day, Megan is safe with her parents and free from ever having to face her capture again. Nevertheless, the impact of her escape, the high-speed chase, the exchange of gunfire with police, the loss of K9 Rick, and the injuries sustained by Sergeant Raymond, left a lasting imprint of trauma on all of those involved. Beginning with Sergeant Raymond and Sergeant Lovell, who was a deputy at the time, we will delve into the immediate aftermath and examine the profound effects on those closest to the case. Can you explain what your injury was?
2: Yeah, it was shot in the thigh with a, a three fifty seven magnum, hollow point. It fragmented and went up. It followed my thigh. I was kind of squatted down with a shotgun, and uh, the angle that my leg was, the bullet entered and didn't exit, which was probably a fortunate thing. The exit wound on a, on a hollow point causes the majority of the damage. It missed the bone. It stayed in the muscle, and um, it just uh, tore up my thigh pretty good. The pain started to hit when my thigh started to swell up. It, uh, it just kept expanding and getting bigger, and, and the pain just got worse and worse. Initially, it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt at all for about five minutes, and then, uh, then it kicked in. So very fortunate it didn't hit the, the bone. It just stayed right in the muscle. They flew into Urmac, and uh, I remember several officers being lined up when I got wheeled in. I do remember that. My wife at the time, her name is Pam, she met me there. One of the other deputies had called her she was out of town and just just returning in back to town and uh, stopped at her sister's house to pick up my kids that were being watched by my sister-in-law her sister had told her that she'd heard on the news that a deputy had been shot and she was grateful that to know that i wasn't working because i was on night shift and i had a, a different sort of thing that i was supposed to be doing at the the sheriff's office that afternoon And then she received a phone call from one of the other deputies asking her to meet him at Peach's Corner. When she received that phone call, uh, she thought they needed her to watch the kids of the deputy who got shot. So she showed up and met with Kelly Carter was who who called her. When he pulled up, she saw another wife was in the car and then it dawned on her that they're here for my kids. And uh, that's when it all hit her. So the other deputy's wife took took our kids and Kelly took Pam to the hospital to meet me there. I had a couple other family members that were there shortly after. I don't remember the exact sequence of events at the hospital though. Sam Holz is one of the
3: narcotics detectives. Uh, he, he had made it up there. Ultimately, uh, he was attached to me. He used my ride out of there and we get in his car and. You know, at some point we're heading back to back to civilization. We didn't come back the same way we went up there. We went clear up through Moody and Green Canyon. I don't know. We were probably half lost, but I think I remember telling him, I'm like, yeah, i am kind of been up here. I think this goes clear through to Moody and I might be even closer to Highway 33, you know, get us home. I remember getting back to town and was starving. I was hungry. It was late so we went to uh wendy's went there and ate and i remember talking to sam quite a bit on the way out sam had been involved in in um, a shooting a few years earlier kind of talking about that and adrenaline coming down and stress and those kind of things and it was just it, it was good that we took that kind of long way ended up being a longer way out of there i think than the way we came but that was probably good because i had a time to let it all kind of drain off
1: would you mind telling the story about how you had just qualified
3: yeah in fact uh i remember delano dixon was the sergeant over training then and uh, i remember um, i'd just been out qualified like four or five six days before um everybody was going through quals and and whatnot and so i had um, I mean, we remember talking to Delano about how Escott was wearing his gray shirt, exact same as this gray silhouette, you know, uh, that we shoot at to Qual, and and I just remember, you know, focusing on the front sight and putting it over top of that gray spot, hoping that I get it to him before he got his to me, and then just seeing that gray spot move, you know, I could just seeing him catch that bullet in wherever he caught it. And going, oh, shit, I got him. And he was kind of quizzing me about that is how it kind of you revert back to your training and your practice and things like that. But, but I, I had, uh, I don't ever remember getting a perfect qualification ever uh, until I qualified perfect, uh, 100% with my gun just four, five, six days before. I don't know as so I've maybe done that once since. And a couple of years later, I was able to get that pistol you know it was in evidence for a couple years and uh, when it came out of evidence I was able to purchase that gun for myself kept it undisturbed I just know that last time I shot it I had to shoot a guy and um, the time before that I qualified perfect with it it was just an odd coincidence for me I'm not I'm not a big shooter I don't go shoot all the time I'm not weighing the guns I I like guns. I like to shoot guns, but I was I was able to qualify every time. That's that was probably the first time ever I would got a solid three hundred perfect score or whatever.
1: When Megan arrived home after her visit to the hospital and the sheriff's office, her family and friends were waiting to welcome her home. We will hear from her sister Nicole and her friends Kara and Amber next. Then we came home later that night and. Megan was
0: home, but it was just kind of chaos. You know, you could just tell something wasn't right and everyone was crying and we didn't really know as siblings what had happened to her until later, I believe it was my mom who sat us down and was like, Megan was taken. She was kidnapped. She's okay and she's home now. And so it was just kind of a weird, hectic, crazy 24 hours.
4: Megan, that night when we uh, went down to her room, she detailed all of it from waking up with him there and kind of all the way through. I honestly feel like she handled it, and especially now as an adult in retrospect, I feel like she handled everything way better than anybody probably could have or should have in such a situation, at least outwardly. And and from what she told me seemed to handle everything quite well. I do know that it was it was hard for her that the uh, that the dog, the canine passed away. She's always had a soft spot for dogs. I don't remember the details of why I ended up at Megan's house that night, but I ended up spending the night with her that night. I don't remember being nervous, but honestly, I was expecting Megan to be upset and sad. And I was prepared to do a lot of listening, you know, maybe even consoling a lot of hugs. Um, But Megan wasn't sad at all. In fact, she was really, really happy. I remember sitting on her bed and she was just kind of bouncing around her room. I don't know what she was doing, maybe cleaning her room or something, hanging up clothes. And I remember thinking it was odd that she was so happy. And I remember being a bit worried about that, that maybe she was still in shock or still hadn't processed what had happened. Um, but again, she was home safe. But at one point she was sharing some details. I don't remember a lot of what she said. And I, I wasn't asking questions. you know. I didn't want her to have to relive that nightmare. And it broke my heart because it reminded me just how young and innocent she really was. I remember being at Megan's home a lot after this incident. I don't really know why, um, but I remember there always being a lot of news reporters at their home or people always stopping by, people trying to take pictures through their windows. And so I remember that was always, you know, they were always looking for lights coming into their driveway. And I remember it being really stressful on their family because suddenly they're in protection mode. Like they're really trying to protect Megan's identity. They're, you know, they're trying to keep people out of their house, essentially. And so, yeah, it was, it was consuming,
1: In the aftermath of the police chase and the shooting, the sheriff's office was weighed down by the loss of K-9 Rick and the bullet wounds sustained by Sergeant Todd Raymond. As additional details emerged and news reports shed light on the situation, a clearer understanding began to take shape for the community. Let's now listen to Sergeant Lovell as he recalls the events of that morning to the best of his recollection.
3: At some point... During that next day, someone called and let me know that, that they were going to cremate Rick at the animal shelter. So I made my way to town for that to kind of be there for for Jim. I think I'd got there late and sort of missed it, but was there. I think I'd, I don't know if they'd sent me home in a different patrol car or maybe I'd come back and got mine. They were done with mine or something. But I had pulled up in the, the Fiestole parking lot there on Yellowstone down from the shelter, the animal shelter I just pulled up and talked to Kevin Casper for quite a while um, he was working that day I I remember breaking down right there talking to Casper about it anyway I I remember heading home and which is Past Megan's residence, so I pulled in in there and went in to talk to them to see how they were doing and and whatnot. I remember going in and Daryl, I don't even remember. I said two words going in, but Daryl pulled me in. I think we went in a bedroom, a side bedroom or something there, and I think I just I, just, I lost it. I don't know. I, I just felt I felt bad. I hated what I'd done to them. It was probably more of a, a my problem at the time, and me trying to worry about them and check on them but really they were kind of there for me and I can't remember who all was there in the room um seemed like it was just me and Daryl maybe his wife and um and I was there for a little bit and shed some tears and and uh and went on home and then I was there was a couple weeks there I was off for a couple of weeks and it wasn't very long I was back to work kind of life moved on from there
1: After her kidnapping, Megan and her family made a valiant attempt to readjust their lives and return to normalcy. However, a constant reminder persisted through the news. Coverage of Elizabeth Smart's kidnapping, as well as fresh details about Hescock, were emerging daily, making the adjustment more difficult. And so the other
0: crazy thing was that mine happened the same night as Elizabeth Smart, but I remember being home. And we were sitting there watching TV and her picture had popped up on the screen. And I said like, oh, is that me? And then I realized it wasn't because what we were wearing, our hair color was so similar. So that was really, that caught me off guard. I was like, whoa. And so there's somebody else. And I didn't ever think they would find her. And then I, I heard, I don't know if this is true, when I heard that he had called his family in the middle of the chase and told
1: them goodbye, left him a message. Hescock had called his family. To provide more insight into this experience, we turned to his niece, Phaedra, who lived with him at the time. Phaedra was also the same girl whom Megan had recognized in the video while being held captive. I'm Phaedra Brown. On June 5th, I was actually here
5: in Eastern Oregon. We were supposed to be gone for eight days, I believe. We normally went and visited our family every summer. I'd been staying at what they called a stock show in a little town that's kind of close to where my family lived. We were there for a rodeo and my cousin was showing some animals. And I remember that We were getting ready to actually head to the rodeo. When I saw my mom and my aunt, they came up and they told us that they had to leave and that they were heading back to Idaho Falls. And then that my uncle Keith Hescock had been killed. They didn't really say what happened, how he died or anything like that. They just said that they had to go and get back to Idle Falls to figure out what was going on. And I remember everyone was crying. I was crying for completely different reasons than what everyone else was crying for. And I just remember feeling relieved, but also scared at the same time because I didn't know what had happened and what was going to come out of it. It was, I think, That evening, I was able to find out that my uncle had been killed during a shootout and that he took a little girl. He called my aunt's house where we were staying. The only person that was home, I believe it was my my little cousin. And so he was the one that answered the phone and he told him that something had happened, and to tell my grandma goodbye for him. And that was about all we knew until a couple days later. They were in Idaho for probably a week and a half. Um, I found out over the phone that we were moving to live with my family here. Um, So they kind of left us with one of my older cousins and all the adults went down to Idaho and packed up our whole house and moved us here. Then that's when my mom talked to me and told me that it was a girl that I had went to school with and kind of explained the story and um, said what had happened. So it wasn't until I was able to get a hold of one of my friends that I was able to find out that it was Megan. I know that A lot of my family didn't really want to believe what happened, but I mean I knew they tried finding excuses for what had really happened and um, I knew what type of person he was and how he could be and so I knew that it was true. They wanted to pretend that Megan was lying and that it couldn't be true. They didn't like me to talk about it. My abuse started when we first moved in with him, which I was only a toddler. My mom found out when they went back to Idaho. He had videos of it, and so the police had her go in and kind of see, because I don't know if she didn't believe it or what, and so that was how she found out. Um, She didn't tell me that she knew until they came back and probably a week after everyone was back, they
1: got most of the family together and sat me down and talked to me. Phaedra's invaluable insight and firsthand knowledge of Hescock's true nature raises concerns about his involvement in additional criminal activities. Retired Detective Sergeant Kevin Cox will now elaborate on the actions and measures taken by law enforcement in the subsequent days and weeks.
6: In the aftermath, um, due diligence, We took all the information that we had gleaned from Megan and anybody else that was involved and we sent that nationwide to law enforcement and uh, we we did a timeline to try and track as far back as we could because we you know through the first investigation we learned that, that keith was an avid hunter and so the places we knew he'd been we specifically contacted those agencies we had some replies for further information. But to my knowledge, they never connected him elsewhere. Uh, He's still a person of interest in our Amber Hoops case. You never stopped Keith from doing what he was doing. That's why I think there's others. And there could be a slug of them, you know, that he drove past and snagged or hitchhiked. I mean, the good Lord only knows.
1: Throughout the production of this podcast, the word miraculous was echoed by every single person I interviewed. As every detail was laid out, it was easy to see why. The accumulation of small decisions grew increasingly difficult to ignore, painting a vivid picture of an undeniable miracle. Following her crucial role in Megan's escape, Misty was positive she understood what had guided her thoughts and actions on that fateful day. Reflecting on the
7: little tiny moments, um, it makes me get emotional because knowing that not many girls survive things like that. So, knowing how important it was that I listened to the promptings that I received. The small things like staying at the office, um, going home to change my shoes and not changing my shoes, listening and, and knowing I need to get back right now, like the time of it. I mean, It is just so amazing how God works in mysterious ways. And that still small voice is so important to listen to when even in the heat of the moment, not fully understanding which direction to go. You have to trust. Just like Megan did. Like She just trusted that I had this inner knowing. She didn't give up. I just have one solid testimony that it doesn't matter where you are in life. I was young. I was 22, 23. I don't remember how old I was, but young. And a single parent and had my own stuff going on in my life. But you know, I didn't know what direction my life was going. I was trying to date again. I just went through a divorce. And as far as you want to talk religious, like I probably wasn't living the greatest life. So I didn't think, you know, why would I be inspired to know what to do or, you know, be where I need to be. And that's not what it's about. It doesn't matter where you are in life or what's you know what choices you make, like, you're still loved. You're still a chosen one. You just have to trust that the Father's there for you. It doesn't matter what time of life it doesn't have to take something this severe because that's quite an experience. I mean, it changed me because it just showed me that it just doesn't matter who you are, Holy Father, if He wants to choose you to help somebody else, you're it. You just need to listen to that still small voice because it's there. I feel like it's there for everybody. You know, I often think of Megan, and I know that it's you know it's been a struggle for her to you know deal with her own challenges since that incident, or just with life in general you don't have to go through something hard to have your struggles but you know it's just knowing that you're not alone there's someone else out there that I, I keep saying someone else but it's God <laughs> he really is there and he is there to help he is there to guide you he's there to support you and keep you lifted but it's really how you how you handle it how you handle that situation how you handle anything in life that gets thrown at you Megan's a true example. Like, um, her story can help so many people to really understand that it really isn't what you're going through that matters, it's really how you handle it. And how she chose to handle her situation and how she continues to handle the yucky stuff that comes from having to experience such traumatic things at a young age. Like, I wish more people could learn from that. Because so many people, especially nowadays, just... They just don't know where to look or where to go or where to turn or that they even have that internal guidance. How do you teach that?
1: Deputy Stosage and Deputy Chris Reed also acknowledge the remarkable miracles that emerge from this situation. Here are their own words on the matter.
3: God played so many roles. From the time that I showed up, having the gut feeling saying this is not your typical runaway to having Keith being called in to, to work and then being able to, to break free down through the chain, bust through a door, find an envelope, be able to call and give that information to somebody that was close enough to pick her up and get her back home. Although there's a lot of unfortunate events that, that took place during that period that she was with him, She's around today. It's a blessing.
8: You know, I I don't remember too many things in my career that I really considered miraculous. But that was one that I will always, always, and I've always thought, I don't know what is in store for her in her life. But there was a reason, because there was no reason in the world why she should have ever come out of that alive. The way that he was called into work, the way that she had the presence of mind to escape and and call, I mean, it was just, it still gives me goosebumps just to think about it, because to me, that was miraculous that she ever escaped. And then to be able to go on with her life and and uh, do good things, that's pretty amazing. There's not too many people that could live through what she did and come out with any kind of a normal life at all. And um, I have seen her here and there on occasion and and I just look at her and I just think that is absolutely amazing. It says a lot for uh, having a good foundation and families and all those kind of things, the support system, you know, that she could get herself put together and and have a, a decent life. I'm not sure what God had in store for her, but he had to have something in store for her because otherwise I don't know why she would have ever survive that.
0: I felt like a lot of people really reached out. That was the huge thing for me though, is I had a huge amount of support from the community and neighbors and friends. And I think that really helped with the healing. And it sure, it takes time. Like, there's a lot. I mean, there's even still things today, of course, that trigger certain things. But for the most part, like, I feel really good about where I'm at. It actually makes me sad when I look at other people. And they've had similar situations happen. And they're so traumatized that they just can't get past certain things in life. And that's so sad to me. Because I've been so fortunate to have so much support in my corner but when you go through something like that it changes you like you just I mean I grew up so quick and then trying to process everything that happened and even my friends I mean I remember um, my close friends before i we struggled afterwards and it's not necessarily anybody's fault. It was just the whole dynamic changed and they didn't understand me. And I was frustrated, be frustrated because they didn't understand. And so it just, it was hard afterwards for
1: sure. This podcast was produced by me, Emily. Be sure to stay tuned until the end to hear a preview of the next episode. While the timeline may not be exact, The facts of this case are laid out as close as the memories of those involved allowed. You can find additional information on our website, sheismissingpodcast.com. She's Missing is a Search Party media production. If you have any information about the disappearance of Amber Hoops, please contact Bonneville County Sheriff's Office by calling 208-529-1200 or by going to ifcrime.org. That weekend, or sometime, shortly after, we
0: had decided, we went up and were searching for Amber Hoops again. And um, we got to go see where the shootout happened. And that was really kind of a closure thing, too. Like, getting to see. I mean, there was still, like, blood on the ground that they had covered. I mean, you could tell that dirt was on and stuff, but it was... Like you knew that this is where it ended and it was done.